building better relationships at home and at work for people who have more than enough on their plate. Two coaches dangling the possibility of finding joy in your relationships. Do you dare to consider life can be better? Have a listen and tell us why. Welcome to Building Better Relationships at Home and at Work with Angela and Patty. Today we will be discussing Angela's journey for the past few months after surviving an aggressive cancer and her healing transformation. So Angela, I'm gonna turn it over to you to tell about your journey. Thank you, Patty. It's been uh, quite a amazing journey and I can still speak about it. So that's partly <laughs> some of the most amazing piece. And thanks to you, Patty, for making this possible today for me to share. Uh, we have not been doing the podcast because uh, we were scheduled to do one in July of 2019 and now it's March 2020 and some of us are experiencing the results of the coronavirus. So I thought it might be a really appropriate time to share what happened to me in July last year where I almost uh, was going to die from the cancer because my whole life got interrupted and now I'm seeing in my own friends and family uh, and community how their lives have been interrupted with the coronavirus. Um, and because of my cancer at the time, it interrupted a lot of people's lives around me. My best friend, my partner and my family had uh, their whole lives turned upside down as well, which has actually had some amazing benefits. So I'll, I'll share, Patty, some of the timeline about what happened with my diagnosis. I, I um, went for a hysteroscopy because the gynecologist was concerned about um, my imaging from an ultrasound with my uterus. And when I had the hysteroscopy, they found out the next week in July 2nd that I had a very large mass in the uterus and then the following day after diagnosis they saw that my ovaries which were just four weeks before normal size had grown to seven and eight centimeters so at that point I was like oh my god this is it this is I have quite a bit of cancer in my family more more bowel cancer and and uh, lymphoma mm -hmm. but I was really petrified and my sister was also quite scared as well and within about 10 days after July 2nd I started to feel very sick and I thought something was going on with the ovaries but I wasn't sure because I, I was at home and I started to go down pretty much like some of the coronavirus people say they start to have trouble breathing and uh, difficulty uh, doing things physically because I can't breathe. And unbeknownst mm -hmm. to me, what had happened was that the ovaries had started to increase and they had created enormous amounts of blood clots in my lungs. And as a byproduct of that, there was um, my right lung was full of liquid. So I couldn't breathe very well and I was starting to sleep a lot and basically going down 
until finally my girlfriend called me and was asking me how I was and I just said to her very quietly I don't really know and she said immediately I'm going to come and get you so she Mm -hmm. came and got me that was around July 21st and we got a doctor to see me at the house her house and within a few minutes her and the doctor just went this looks like blood clots so I got rushed to hospital and at the hospital they saw how bad my lungs were and they were convinced at that point that I had cancer in the lungs and my intuition was like no I've got cancer in my uterus and probably the ovaries but no it's not in my lungs but right away the doctors were very very concerned (laughs) here's me with my girlfriend we just got diagnosis I had cancer but we were hearing that this cancer could be out of control And right from the start, my intuition was like, no, it's not in the lungs. It's not. But the doctors were very convinced it had spread. So within that first week of hospitalization, the liquid in my right lung just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And they had to put a drain in. And then I got transferred. Yeah, it was pretty full on. That was the first procedure out of five or six. So the drain was supposed to take out the liquid, but the liquid kept on being produced. And it was pretty frightening because my family started watching this and my friends and they're thinking, what is going on? And I'm thinking, what is going on? Which led to a lot of, now what I understand is, um, I really wasn't wanting to be here. I wasn't really happy with my life. I wasn't really celebrating life. So lungs, if you work energetically, lungs are about happiness, uh, taking in life and breathing. You know, when we breathe, we're celebrating life itself. When a child is born, that first breath is taking in the oxygen on earth. They don't, they don't breathe before that first breath, first breath. They don't use their lungs. So I was really experiencing a lot of feelings about uh, is this really the life I want to live and before I got diagnosed I was really busy in my life and I had happiness but I wasn't really embracing joy in my life I was still questioning a lot of my value not to my family and friends I think I I know uh, how much I enjoy them and they enjoy me. But during my hospital stay, which was 10 weeks after I got taken into hospital, I really got to experience how much my family and friends love me. And that was a bit of a shock too. (laughs) You had a lot of time to to self-reflect during all of that time. Yeah. And I think in hospital, people think you're really sick and you can't reflect. But what I discovered, and I met a lot of sick people that inspired me and that also made me realize how fortunate I am, how blessed I am, because I had people with me every day. I was there for 10 weeks and I had maybe, I don't know if I had any day where I was alone. Um, Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I saw a lot of people who weren't as blessed as me. 
but I, I, I learnt from other people in hospital and certainly a lot more people who are older than myself. I'm 49 or 48 and I saw people about 10 to 20, 30 years older than me in hospital and they taught me a lot about um, if you don't have support, what do you do? If, you, if mm -hmm. your muscles are emaciated and wasted away because what happened when I went down, I won't go through all the details uh, because there was many, <laughs> but basically I got so sick that uh, my muscles emaciated. I wasn't eating for about a month, I think. I was eating a bit and then I got to eating nothing um, because the fluid in my lungs was pressing on my stomach and I had an underlying uh, infection as well, which they didn't, the hospital didn't know about. And that pool of liquid from that infection was pressing on my stomach, which is on the left side of the body. So I had so many complications that I ended up not being able to uh, walk and my body and muscles got emaciated. And then as a consequence of all of this bed being bedridden, I ended up having uh, edema as well. So I couldn't move because of the edema and I, I ended up not being able to uh, turn in the bed as well. So that was quite confronting. And fortunately, I had a lot of friends that were able to get things sorted with the nurses in the hospital. So I ended up getting a mattress that was an air mattress. Otherwise, I would have had further complications because I couldn't move in the bed as well. And get, you get bed sores and things like that. So I learned, I learned a lot from the other people in the hospital as well that um, when I couldn't walk, I was seeing people also who had cancer or other diseases and were recovering and they were maybe 10 steps or 20 steps ahead of me so I saw them struggling or I saw an 80 year old woman climbing in and out of the bed <laughs> and I remember looking at her thinking oh I want to do that I want to do that so the um so she gave you some inspiration then yeah because you see you see people I mean, I think at any point in life you can be dismayed about your life or you can think, oh, I don't really enjoy my life. I don't think that it's that great. You can have depression. You can have a sense of why am I here? Why bother? And then you see someone who maybe they're elderly or they're disabled or they, they can't do things physically, yet they're fully charged and embracing life. And I saw this 80-year-old woman, she didn't speak much English, and she was climbing in and out of bed on her knees like a five-year-old. And I knew her sickness, like her blood pressure was very high one day, yet she was still charging for life. And I did, I got inspired by her zest and her um, bouncing back regardless of mm -hmm. what her condition was. So, yeah, when I was bedridden, I got to see a lot of inspiration from the patients, the nurses, the doctors. I had an incredible team. And community was basically what supported me 
to live, to get back to life, without that community of the doctors, the nurses, the cleaning staff, the people who pushed my bed to get x-rays and CT scans and to go to surgery, the nurses that prepped me for surgery. I had every day I had miracles um, through the people. I had incredible um, community, including my family and friends. And friends I hadn't seen for years. Some friends I had seen for maybe once in a while every year or so came once a week. Um, so, yeah, the community was incredible that got me through this. Uh, but I did experience a lot of... It wasn't depression, but I, I guess I experienced a lot about not wanting to be here and not... Um, not feeling that my life was the way it should be. And that was the biggest shock once I got into that um, problem with the clots in my lungs. They couldn't actually operate on me because I could have died. So the liquid in the lungs kept getting worse and worse to the point where they had to do one surgery to seal my right lung so they the liquid around my lungs kept on being produced and they ended up doing a surgery to seal that right lung the the, the gap between the lung and the lung wall or the muscle around the lung so that was the second procedure and after that that's when I got a huge blood clot around the heart um so, that was so, Angela, so Angela, when this was happening, did you know that this was all going on or you understood what was going on or were you kind of out of it? At that point, um, when I had the liquid in the lungs, I was very conscious, but I, because you, you lack oxygen, one thing that happens when you don't breathe properly, your brain function it doesn't die, but it's it's going down. When we don't breathe, we're basically on the way to death. Um, and you, you start to feel like you're dying or you start to feel what someone would feel like if they're dying. And I was very alert because of some of the drugs that they put me on. And at the point when I got that blood clot that's when I started to actually die. That's that there was a huge blood clot. But before that blood clot, I was still very conscious and the, the, the medical staff were incredible at communicating with me. They were so good at articulating, Angela, this is happening to you. We're going to do this. Now there is a risk and we want you to know this and they were so clear at communicating and because of the team around me, my family and friends, they were also asking questions. They were very, my family and friends were great at um, talking and asking those extra questions that I couldn't because my brain function was d diminishing. Um, and the other thing, Patty, that was really amazing was that um, because I'm a healer, I work with intuition so I was still using my intuition while my brain capacity was diminished and I was still asking my 
intuition questions such as because the doctors were convinced I had cancer in the lungs and I was always asking and I kept on getting no I don't have cancer in the lungs but they were so convinced the medical staff were like tisking and looking at me concerned and so worried and that could have made me more sick if I believed what they were thinking I think I would have panicked more I would have um, been in more distress because when you lose your brain function you can become more um, nervous or anxious but because of the intuition and I got very clear answers consistently that I didn't have cancer in the lungs I kept a lot of my sense of self even though my brain function was diminishing and even now my brain function has definitely been <laughs> diminished <laughs> after recovery um, but my intuition is still there so part of my journey was to really learn about intuition and discover how those parts of yourself that are beyond the physical body the spiritual part of yourself it's still operational when you're sick and you can definitely draw on it and uh, unfortunately my family would, and friends were told that I was going to die by the doctors pretty much from the beginning I that it was a very serious cancer it was very aggressive it had spread and unfortunately I was watching them really believe it whereas at the beginning I said no it's not as serious as they're saying I mean I am very seriously ill I was at that time but I knew mm -hmm. that it wasn't spread like the doctors were saying uh, however those ovaries were pretty bad they were growing and growing and eventually they were growing they, fast right oh, very man. fast they were growing so fast I was in severe pain and they they went from seven and eight centimeters to 13 and 15 centimeters and they were pressing yeah. on the nerves my kidneys a nerve behind my kidney was being pressed so I was in excruciating pain and unfortunately my family and friends and the, the nursing staff and doctors had to witness that too so that added to their fear that I, this cancer was much more aggressive than it was or that had now spread. did they oh I'm sorry Angela I didn't mean to interrupt you did um did they remove that first or were they focusing on your lungs um but they didn't want to remove the cancer in the uterus and they suspected it was also in the ovaries from the scans they didn't want to remove it because that would require putting me under anesthetic and then I could die because of the blood clots okay so they were postponing the hysterectomy and and removal of the ovaries and unfortunately which were growing fast which were which growing, were growing fast. and causing the blood clots okay and they were still suspecting that I had cancer spread to the lungs and unfortunately they were just trying to stop the liquid in my right lung growing and it looked like the, that it might be also the liquid growing in the left there was a bit of liquid in the left lung too so they were just trying to do stop gaps like putting a finger in the hole of a sinking ship and once they'd done the surgery on the lung 
they were then at that point hoping that they could risk doing the surgery to remove the ovaries and the uterus. But it, there was no guarantees because they didn't know from the blood clots whether it would survive a surgery. So this whole time my poor friends and family were being told she's, she could die, uh, this cancer is probably in the lungs. And um, at that point, um, after they'd done the lung surgery, I did almost die because I, I had a blood clot that went to my heart, around my heart. So they did call everybody in my family, my partner and my friends, and they said, uh, this is high-risk surgery. But I did another surgery where they went into uh, the body through my um, groin. They went up the artery to the heart and removed or dispersed two of the blood clots around the heart that almost had killed me. And I was awake <laughs> in that surgery. And God bless him, the surgeon was a genius. And he said at the end of the surgery, I said to him, how did you do this? That was amazing. That was another miracle for me to watch. And he, he was very dismissive. He just said, look, I stand on the shoulders of many geniuses before me. And I'm just doing what they have created the pathway before me. So at that point, I was shocked because it was like a spiritual message for me. Um, I'd been sort of teetering on the edge of dying. And here's this surgeon saying uh, very casually, look, I'm just here to save your life. and But it's not me. It's because of all these hundreds of other geniuses before me. I've learned from them and now I can help you. And it gave me humility around my purpose and why I'm here on earth. It doesn't have to be big or small. It's just continuing a long line of tradition of people who've been helping other people. So that doctor, as much as he might be um, not the most, he wasn't the most friendly doctor, but in that moment, he taught me so much about service that you don't, it's not about you. It's about continuing to help because you can help. And yes, he's good at his job, but it's not him. It's because other people have helped him to learn how to save people's lives. So that was the third procedure when I got the the clot removed and I was awake and I was still conscious. And then after uh, that surgery, unfortunately, that's when I, I went unconscious. No. See, here's where I get all messy. <laughs> This is where my timeline, I, I need my family and friends to tell me what happened because I often forget. Um, but at some point I went unconscious and that's when I actually started to die or try to die because I couldn't die. <laughs> um, and um, I did go unconscious. So explain when you went unconscious what you were feeling or seen or were you even aware I wasn't aware of like as we know physically aware at that point they gave me a lot of drugs like adrenaline mm -hmm. so meanwhile they told my friends and family oh these are her last moments 
spend the time that you can with her. And I was coming in and out of states of consciousness and unconsciousness, I think. I don't know. I can't really remember. But I do remember. <laughs> I'd be conscious. I was on adrenaline. And I'd uh -huh. see my family and friends and they're all looking at me like I'm going to die. And I'm looking back at them thinking, what's your problem? I'm not dying. <laughs> <laughs> and I told them, I said, don't look at me like that. I'm not going to die. What's your problem? Stop looking at, stop thinking I'm going to die. Because I had in my intuition been told, it's not your time. It's, it's not time to die. Yet everybody around me had a very different opinion and and I'd come back and see their face thinking, well, damn, if you're thinking that, I'm going to die. Don't add to my, I already have these issues around not feeling great about my life uh, and now you're just throwing out all this negative energy about she's dying, she's dying. And so I basically was very abrupt with them and... I personally was thinking it was quite ironic uh, that I had created a situation where my family, friends, doctors had all been convinced I was going to die. I thought, wow, you've really done a good job here, Angela. Look what you've manifested by thinking negatively about your life. So I went at some point unconscious, for real, and that's when they incubated me. And to this day, Patty, I don't even know what incubation is because I, I, I came later on after I got out of hospital in October my friends were telling me you were incubated and I was like what's that word so I wasn't here because the word incubated was being used and I don't remember it and um, so I did go was unconscious. Was that kind of like a, being isolated or being in, in a in um kind of like in a isolation or um, incubated and I'm not really uh, medically up to speed with this because I was out of it usually when something I was conscious and they told me a word I discussed with friends and family and Google <laughs> they googled for me okay. because I, uh, what things were but what I understand is that they put a tube into you to keep you alive breathing they keep you breathing and they um, hook you up to all the machinery to check your heart and so you're basically alive but not doing it yourself um, okay. okay but i'm so it's, it's sorry to those listening who understand medical terms because i'm not doing it justice but putting me on support to keep me alive yeah there you go okay and i think now that's I'm... what the coronavirus people who are at the extreme so some people on the way in coronavirus, they have oxygen and they're conscious and then others, are, they go down because you can't breathe and they put you on support incubated uh, is the official term, I think. Um, yeah. And I know it's unconscious because I literally don't understand what happened to me. And that, during that period, Patty, it was a few days where the surgery was done on me they did remove the they did the full hysterectomy, so they removed the uterus and the ovaries because at that point they thought, well, look, if she's going to die, we may as well take this out to see if she does survive. 
and that's why the doctors now see me as a miracle because they did do the full hysterectomy when I was out of it and I did survive that surgery <laughs> and then I came became wonderful. conscious yeah. yeah at that point the doctors were like something's going on here she's she's a, they called me the miracle girl uh, because I didn't die and, and they were convinced I was supposed to. Um, yeah, so that's where I was going to share, Patty, about what I sort of remember about um, that period I wasn't here, um, which connects to the title of this podcast of uh, What Are You Doing Here? <laughs> um, so if... This is when I was unconscious, um, what happened was a lot of, um, I felt a lot of negative energy, which was my own stuff, my own energy, my own feeling of being so angry that this was happening to me and questioning like, well, if I've had 48 years on this planet, what have I done with those 48 years? Is, is it really the life that you were meant to live? Knowing also that I wasn't meant to die, I knew that consciously, but I was judging a lot of negative judgment about what I'd done with those 48 years on earth. And also what I'd shared with people, my loved ones, my community, um, not was it enough, but have I really given to them everything that I wanted to share and in the period of when I was unconscious some at some moment I actually did cross over to somewhere I don't know where it was because it wasn't that tunnel of light that people talk about I've had a lot of spiritual teachers and I've had one teacher Helen who's passed over she's tried to die three times <laughs> And she's gone through this tunnel of light and she's shared her journey with us about that. So here I am, almost dying, and I'm thinking, there's no tunnel of light. Where is it, right? <laughs> where, where is it? Where's the tunnel? All I'm seeing is a lot of negative energy, which is mine, and I knew it was mine. A lot of judgment. But. I did get to this, I don't know what you call it, but it was like a, um, it was a very clear boundary of this world to the next. And I basically got told by my spiritual guide or whoever it was, what are you doing here? No. I got clearly, first it was a no, no. And I knew what the no was. It's like, it's not your time. But then they said, what are you doing here? Because they knew and that I knew it, I, it wasn't my time to die. I'd already confirmed that from the moment I went to emergency and the doctor said, oh, it's, it's, the cancer is in your lungs. It's like, no, it's not in my lungs. I knew very clearly when I was conscious in that emergency room, it wasn't my time to, to go. I was very angry that I had cancer and that I had to experience this pain, but I knew. And here I was getting a very clear answer from the other side. Angela, 
what are you doing here? You're not meant to die. So why are you trying to <laughs> come into the spiritual world? <laughs> and maybe that's why you didn't see the tunnel of light. But everybody's near-death experience is a little different. But right. you knew that you didn't belong there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I basically got, um, you know, a, a sort of a, a spiritual rejection. In fact, it was a spiritual rejection. I, I basically had my guide or guides, I don't know who it was. It was one voice I heard. But it was like very Australian, actually. So maybe I don't know if my guides are part Australian, but it was like, what are you doing here? No. <laughs> and <laughs> so I laugh about it now. But at the time, I was so angry and laughing as well. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I have to die or almost try to die and then this is what I get this is the bad <laughs> attitude that I get like there was no warm and fuzzy feeling I mean it definitely wasn't dark energy at all but it wasn't any spiritual kind of beautiful place or anything it was like go back to earth and yes you're angry they acknowledged my anger for sure but they didn't try to soften it because I definitely had to face my anger at being alive at feeling frustrated with how my life was and at choosing what to do with that anger because basically I could experience the anger and suffer some more or I could start to go through the physical pain it was very painful what I went through and move, and move forward, forward with towards, towards joy, joy, to bring joy, joy as, a, as a choice, choice. and not and as, a, not as an option, but as a but choice, as a choice that I'm for embracing. embracing. So they really, really, really had to make me make experience, experience more anger, <laughs> anger. <laughs> even, even, even at the threshold, threshold of dying. They wanted, they wanted me to experience my anger, anger. Um, to see it, see it, not experience it. They wanted me to be more angry. They wanted me to see it, clear and and. Bright as day, day they made me see my, see my anger as my choice. choice. And then, and then I had the I other had choice, choice just to just be joyful. Be joyful. Of course, well, it's hard, hard to be hard joyful, to be joyful when you're experiencing extreme suffering, suffering physical, physical pain. pain. But that's, but that's what, what made me realise um, um, how do we experience joy uh, when you're when suffering. suffering. And, and I've got a lot to share on that, which I'll talk about that a little bit now, but we're also going to talk about that more in the second part of this topic about my journey back to life um, and I'll share a little bit about that now um, when I came back from the threshold um, I really like how, how you said that I, I didn't see the, the light because it basically wasn't my time to cross over and they weren't going to give me any illusion around that. Um, so when after I came back, I started slowly coming back uh, to consciousness in ICU. And I had 10 days. Had ten. Um, Angela, was that when they had taken you um, off of life support and you were breathing on your own? Yes, that, yes. that must have been. That's, that must have been the point. Been point. My memories of my that memories time are a bit wishy-washy. Mm -hmm. I remember my f girlfriend and her face a lot. And she was an ex-nurse, so she was walking me through 
what had happened that I had the surgery, the hysterectomy, and that we laughed a lot because my doctor is actually quite a funny, funny doctor. He's a bit like Patch Adams. In fact, I call him the Australian Patch Adams because he really was so funny from the moment I met him. And he said I behaved very well <laughs> during the surgery. Uh, so she started to talk me through and I still had the tube in my mouth, but I was conscious. And I remember waking up thinking, why is this tube in my mouth? And I couldn't uh, see my eyes and were blurry so I started writing but my handwriting was so bad because I couldn't speak because the tube was in my mouth so I did start to come back and at that point I was in ICU with the tube and I couldn't speak so I was writing and the handwriting was terrible and I didn't understand what had happened to me so my girlfriend was explaining it and eventually um, some of the nursing staff were filling me in but not on the whole journey because they don't when you're in ICU they don't tell you what happens they, they, they just want to keep you alive they don't remind you that you almost died and around you a lot of people are dying in ICU so I did actually experience uh, a few people passing over around me in the other rooms they give you a separate room in my case I had a sep everybody in my ward had a separate room but I did hear a few people die around me and that was quite traumatic um, and one member of my family couldn't she's quite sensitive so we ended up not letting her come in because she could I knew she was picking up um, on the people dying so I didn't want her to she's too sensitive energetically so we stopped her coming uh, so my family and friends at that point were aware that I was alive but there was still the threat that I would go because of these blood clots and um, when I came back I was also given guidance through my teacher Helen and she has always helped me in, in major transitions of my life but at this point because she has died three times she's got a lot of wisdom about dying and not crossing over so she had given me some wisdom through another friend of mine and they had given me some tips about breathing because I couldn't breathe with the tube and all the liquid was still in my lungs still it was dissipating the liquid in the lungs but I had a lot of liquid still so I had to learn how to breathe again and from my teacher she'd given me this strategy about breathing which was um, one hand on the heart and one hand the other hand on the solar plexus to help balance the third chakra and the fourth chakra and I'd done it before but I was still really quite judgmental and negative still angry I was experiencing this cancer and this pain but when I came back I slowly started to do that strategy along with physiotherapy they were giving me some physio and I started to practice breathing and very very slowly um, practice breathing it was quite difficult with the tube and all the liquid it was quite painful but with that simple simple strategy I slowly slowly started to teach myself how to breathe again without the support of the machine um, and thank God I had one nurse in ICU 
who was, I call her my angel, there were many angels, but she was a young nurse, just out of university six months. And she was 21 years old and such a bright, intelligent nurse and so talented. She was able to manipulate. I had all these tubes and the breathing tube, um, another tube for food into your veins because uh, I wasn't eating. And we'd have to, just to get me to the bathroom on the chair, she have to... Um, get another piece of equipment so I could hold myself and wheel to the, to the um, what do you call it, the bedpan thing on a chair, and she'd have to move all the tubes. It was this incredible orchestration, which she did by herself sometimes, and sometimes a friend of mine might be there to, to assist. But she was just incredible. And I just, I asked her one time, I said, how long have you been doing this? You're incredible. And she says, oh, I've only graduated six months ago, but we, I've been doing ICU for six months because it's what I wanted to do. So I got another lesson in service. She was such a brilliant woman, young woman, and it was her heart. She was talented. She knew about the medicines, but the way she would laugh with me, smile, be sweet, and be very adept at moving all of these tubes um, was incredible to watch and she also told me how nurses they have a whole semester in Australia they have a whole semester about tubes and untangling the tubes so these very practical things I was learning um, that about other people's service and keeping people alive um, which nurses do when you're not in ICU as well. They have to move a lot of tubes when you're out in, in a regular ward. But it showed me how these simple practical things are what we do to stay alive. And they become not just important, but they become um, a gift. Me learning how to breathe by having the hand on the heart and the hand on the solar plexus. When I had liquid everywhere and I couldn't inflate my lungs, that was an incredible, simple task that I got to focus on um, when I came back to life because everything else was just extra. But breathing is, well, breathing is life. If you can't breathe, you can't live. So I got to learn um, baby steps in how do you breathe? How do you go to the toilet when you can't go to the toilet? Um, and I saw um, even when you're really sick or you feel like you have no choice, each moment becomes a choice. And yeah, yeah that was incredible. And here I'm watching the nurse as well. She's fully functional, unlike me. She every moment was making micro choices, which we take for granted when, when you're so-called normal. Your brain in each moment is doing a thousand choices. And she was doing it with a smile. And she was celebrating her time with me. And we joked, I liked her socks and, and I really enjoyed seeing her socks every day. She had these funny little socks that made me smile. And we talk about it. And she taught me about her job and uh, why she chose her job. So that gave me inspiration 
as well about her choices to really choose life and to really enjoy her job. That is, that is incredible and so thankful that you had somebody that loved their job and loved taking care of you. I bet you that really made a difference. It was all the difference. And I also had some nurses in ICU who I don't sort of remember that positively. <laughs> That's putting it politely. I had much stronger language at the time. Uh, but uh, this particular nurse and she wasn't the only one there are several nurses in ICU who saved my life because when you come back to life after almost dying you really have to choose still to breathe and to use if when I had the tube in for example it was really hard because I had liquid um, warm liquid going through the tube and I hated the tube and you have to choose to use the, the equipment too when you're coming back and I hated it and I had to sit up which I couldn't do very easily because if I lay down too much my heartbeat would go too low so I was extremely uncomfortable and in pain and I had to sit up um, to breathe and the nurses, well, this particular nurse and some others helped. Other nurses weren't so good at their job. And I noticed that how much I was dependent on the... It wasn't just the attitude of the nurse, it was the spirit of the nurse, her desire to help or be a good person. Because you don't have to be a fantastic nurse, but if you have the desire to help... You're, you're an amazing nurse because the, the, the spirit of the nurse and um, made all the difference. And uh, when I had a nurse that wasn't so aligned to their, their best self or their spirit, it really did affect my recovery. So I came out of ICU really um, traumatised, actually. But because miracles happened around me constantly. I went back to my original ward, which was an incredible ward, and I'm going to shout out to Ward 8D in North Shore, Royal North Shore Hospital, Sydney, Ward 8D, because that ward was run by a manager who had incredible team spirit. They work as a team, and they were able to support me after I was traumatised from ICU. They brought me back to life with incredible daily um, team spirit and it was the team of that ward that then helped my recovery to come back. Um, the physio as well, there was two physios and their team that worked with me so they're used to working with people that maybe don't want to live. <laughs> And don't want to do physio and they used to use a lot of tricks so I saw how they used a lot of tricks to encourage people who don't want to live to come back to life um, and I really learned that um, when I came back to Ward 8D I did not like breathing I was without the machines but I was still on oxygen and breathing was really still a struggle and 
Um, sometimes I spent the whole day, Patty, not doing my breathing exercise, which, which was from my teacher, teacher. to put the hand, on the, put the hand on the heart and the hand on the, solar, hand plexus. On the solar plexus. Well, what were you thinking at that point in time of why you didn't want to do it? Was it painful or were you just not feeling like you could do it or what was your thought process at that point in time? It was jumbled. It was like living in a zoo with more monkeys and then you know what to do with. So, you know, in meditation, they talk about the monkey mind. Right. I had a, I had a zoo of animals and some of that zoo was, why did I have to suffer? Um, I was angry at the uh, people thinking I was going to die because I knew I wasn't going to die. Um, it was a range of emotions. A range of emotions, jumbled thoughts, um, anger at the nurses that weren't helpful in ICU. Um, I, I have had lots of family members die of cancer, my mum and dad. So I was thinking about what they went through. A lot. So I was healing a lot of my memories of their dying because they did actually die and I watched them die mm -hmm. in the same hospital. Um, well, not that specific ward, but the neighbouring hospital. Uh, and my father did pass in that hospital. And so a lot of jumble, 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 jumble. And it, it was like being in a... Um, you know when you're at a playground equipment and you've got that wire mesh, I think they call it, not monkey bars, but the, the spider web, and you have to climb and climb. So I was just trying to think about how to get to the bathroom because I still couldn't get out of bed. So I'd have to think, when am I going to ask, is, is my bowel movement coming now? So I constantly was thinking about the basics and then how was I going to get to do the the number ones or the number twos. I was a lot of things about food because I couldn't eat. So I was trying to eat, but I still had the infection on my stomach, which we didn't know about at the time. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't drink water because I didn't like it. And that was because of the infection. I, I had a press, pressing on my stomach and I didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it. So I was um, trying to survive still physically and that was really, so half of my thoughts were about survival and then the other half were hallucinations about the past, my parents, why did I have to suffer? Uh, so I still wasn't really embracing joy, <laughs> even though I knew I wasn't supposed to die. And... I'm kind of on that spider web trying to go from one hand grip to the next to the next, but I couldn't physically move very much. And half of the time it was like thinking really basic stuff. Should I turn over on my side? Is that going to work? Because I couldn't turn, but I could sort of roll and I could use my arms. My arms were still mobile, but I had to work out if I was going to roll how to do it so it was quite so I'd spend maybe 10 minutes just thinking about that 
and then mm-hmm. suddenly 10 minutes has gone. I did watch a bit of television, but sometimes I couldn't watch that because I'd be so consumed by um, what what should I do? And I think if I look back at my past before I got cancer, I think I could say I did that many times in my life. I'd just spend 10 minutes wasted on thinking about what should I do about a small thing, not even you know about trying to breathe about you know maybe posting something on the internet I'd think 10 minutes about it Uh, so I get angry about that then that I wasted 10 minutes but when I was recovering I wouldn't really get angry I'd be just still in a jumble and then I knew I had been given by my teacher this five minute exercise well it could be 30 minutes they didn't give me a time specification but I knew that if I just did five minutes of breathing with the hand on the heart and the hand on the solar plexus. Um, I knew that would be enough, but it sometimes took the whole day I'd be struggling. And Mm -hmm. meanwhile, you've got nurses coming in every 10 to 30 minutes with some drip and some drug and some antibiotic. I I was on a drip every couple of hours, a different antibiotic or a different whatever drug for my different problems. and they'd also be checking your pulse and your heart blood pressure and um, and the doctor would come in every so often. So I was interrupted throughout the day constantly, which is great because it, it for me it was great because I, I was really enlivened by these people, especially Ward 8D and my doctor and his team and my oncologist, Dr. Sally Baron Hay who's incredible Uh, they were all incredible so it was great but then at 10 o'clock at night I finally would get to this breathing exercise and I learnt after sort of maybe three weeks maybe getting this breathing exercise in (laughs) once a day that that's all it needed that's all if I did five minutes I think uh, a lot of people think you have to do meditation for three hours and you've got to exercise two hours and you've got to do all of this visualization and all I did was five minutes and that was the baby step that now now I'm doing two hours of exercise every other day or I'm doing meditation again 30 minutes here and there throughout the day back in the hospital all it was was five minutes and that was incredible the results were enormous and as a consequence Patty I've changed um, the way I do life and the way I do healing I completely changed the way I do healing because five minutes is enough Yes, just taking that five-minute step can be a life changer. A life changer. Um, we 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 in our society we're we are very comfortable with technology getting faster and faster. So you can download things in a, a split second. But I think in the non-technological world and that includes medicine 
Um, we are not comfortable yet with medicine and non-traditional medicines like alternative healing with instantaneous um, results. But I discovered them. And yes, I did five minutes of breathing and my breathing didn't instantaneously change. But the fact that I'm here and, and every time I go to my physio or my doctor, they, I, they jump back. You look amazing. These are people that were convinced I should be dead. They cannot believe my recovery. They call me a miracle. And every time I go back, even now, five months after hospital, after getting out of hospital, they're, they're happy to see my recovery. They, it is a miracle. And that was from five minutes of some breathing exercise that I did. And from the five minutes each day, the change grew naturally. I didn't get, um, I think the problem with alternative healing is that uh, people think you have to do, um, like I teach an aura protection tool. And I hear mm -hmm. some people say, oh, but I don't feel anything. It's like, you're not supposed to feel something enormous. It do healing doesn't work like that. Um, it, it works exponentially when you do it um, cumulatively. And I have also witnessed from my own recovering a couple of miracles in my surgeries. I, I won't talk about that today. I was going to talk about that in our next podcast. But in the surgeries, I did have instant healings, which I'll share more later. Um, and what I do um, have to share as well is the new energy body channel. Um, Your new YouTube channel. Yeah, because it has uh, this experience of the miracles I had moment in the moment and cumulatively from small healing tools has taught me a different approach to healing that I'm sharing now in the new energy body. And I've created a new YouTube channel for that. And we'll put the description in the link uh, of the podcast as well to see um, if that's of interest to you. But I did want to uh, finish, Patty, with just uh, emphasizing that medicine, traditional medicine surgery, it is a miracle. What the doctors did, what that surgeon did, even though he downplayed it by going into my vein and diffusing the blood clots. That is a miracle too. <laughs> I know it's science. I know you can see it. But what he did in that moment, because I was conscious and participating in the surgery, I had to breathe in so he could move the tube up the vein. I had to breathe oh, wow. in. And, I, and at that time, my lungs were at a tenth of their capacity. I couldn't breathe because mm -hmm. I had fluid everywhere and clots everywhere. And it was, I forget how long the surgery, but it was over an hour, I think, at least. And for an hour and a, and a half, I think, he's telling me to breathe. I had to hold the breath. And then he'd tell me to let go. And I was speaking to him. I was saying, can I let go? Like I had my lung full at capacity for me. 
And thank God I'd done all this meditation work beforehand <laughs> where I had learned to hold my breath. And after that surgery, I watched on the screen this doctor disperse the blood clots. I watched him move the uh, tube or whatever instrument he was using up my vein, bit by bit by bit, or my artery, whatever it was. I think it was the artery from the groin all the way up to the heart. And I'm watching him breathing. And then when he's there, he, he goes through the artery from one side, from the right side to the left of my heart. There's an artery that goes from right to left. So he would cross that and he dispersed the clot on the other side of the heart. And I'm thinking, man, that the fact that I can watch this is a miracle. And the fact that he's capable to do this, it was all a miracle because I got to learn how modern science is incredible that we can do this. A hundred years ago, I would have been dead. 30 years ago, I'd be dead. 10 years ago, I'd be dead. I live in a time where we have medicine that can do this. So we often take science for granted as if it's science and it's not miraculous. But I learnt, well, I think it was something I already believed, but I saw in that surgery how incredible it was. And yes, that doctor, because he's trained in science, he thinks it's not miraculous perhaps. But it, even the people around us, so I had um, there were 10 people in the surgery assisting the doctor and um, they were monitoring the machines and the scan, scanner equipment and they looked at me too and they were like, oh, you're so brave, you're great. And they, I, I was using my spiritual tool, tools during that surgery to support me to get through it because I was still conscious at that point. Um, so that's what I, those tools are what I want to share in the new energy body because they are the what I describe as the um, operating room, those spiritual tools that I used uh, create the environment for for spirit to do its work, for healing to happen. Um, so if that's of interest to people, you can check out the new Energy Body channel and uh, check out our second podcast as well so you can find out more about what I discovered. Well, that sounds very interesting, Angela, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about that. And thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. And I'm really looking forward to part two of this podcast. Thanks, Patty. Thank you, Angela. Thank you for listening to Building Better Relationships with Angela and Patty. Send us a message. And please like or share the podcast or donate with the Anchor Donate button. We really value your feedback.